Welcome to the reprogram, where we reveal and heal the programs our nervous system picked up along our lives to protect us, where our children's improved behavior is a byproduct of the safety we've reclaimed in our bodies, where we use neuroscience to bring us back to love, and where we bravely heal ourselves so our children don't have to. Intergenerational trauma ends with us. I see you. I'm with you. I am you. Let's reprogram together. Okay, everyone. My gosh, this is going to be such a good episode. I recommend a notebook. I recommend a pen. And I also recommend feeling, trusting yourself if you feel like something has really landed and you want to pause and just stop and think, ooh, what does that mean for me? Because Sarah Payton, hi, Sarah. Sarah Payton is an author, a speaker, and she is someone who has learned so deeply about the neuroscience of healing. I have already learned so much from her and I'm already obsessed with this topic and she brings it all together. And you might already tell in such a nurturing, warm voice so we can feel so safe and snuggled up. And I just want to flag your brain that she talks about some really deep thought provoking concepts that will make your mind a little blown. And I just invite you to pause and, and stop and think, Woo, what does that mean for me? Don't you think Sarah, isn't that important? Yeah, it is. It's so important. And so Sarah is coming to us from the Pacific Northwest. She is a speaker and an author of the book, Your Resonant Self, and also the accompanying workbook. And I heard Sarah on another podcast and I was doing my stuff like we all do. I was folding the laundry, doing, going from here to there. And she said that according to this um, epidemiologist and neuroscientist in Vancouver, he stated that he found that our mothers are in every cell of our prefrontal cortex. It stopped me in my tracks. And I, we could just talk about that the whole, the whole hour, because what does that mean? (laughs) Well, first of all, to give you a little context, uh, we have about 86 billion cells in our brain. And I think maybe 13 billion of (laughs) 13 billion of them are devoted to our prefrontal cortex. So we've got 13 billion integrated experiences. It's like every cell of that part of our brain sucks in the way that our mom was both with us and with herself, which is sometimes the big piece of the riddle. Cause we can go, my mom was so, she was so nice to me. I had this terrible lacerating inner voice. My mother was lovely. Where did it come from? And then we say, well, did your mother have a lacerating inner voice? And she goes, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're like, that's where it came from. Our parents don't have to do it to us. They just Mm -hmm. have to do it to themselves because we, not only do we have mom in every cell of our prefrontal cortex, we also, if we are, um, if we're cisgender women, well, probably not even cisgender, probably just any kind of like designated female at birth, we are, we replicate our mom's brains, not just the prefrontal cortex, but everything. We reconstruct our mother's brains. If we're boys, we do it too with our moms, but not to the same extent. So if we're, so Uh. this is, 
So this really speaks to transgenerational transmission of parenting patterns because of the way that, of course, women are mostly the ones taking care of, um, of babies. Uh, so here we are kind of, I, I often like to think of uh, like the chains of women, you know, behind me that are in my prefrontal cortex. But the very cool thing about it is that we get to upgrade. We get to heal. And I often have this sense of healing, of emotional healing, that emotional healing is is us healing ourselves and us transmitting something new to our kids, but also that we're healing the ones who came before us just with love and understanding and understanding of trauma. And like, of course, honeys, of course, this is what your life was with the way the world was in 1820, you know? Oh my Lord. I know. And I, we're going to talk about inner child healing and time travel as well and how the neuroscience supports that. And I do a lot of inner child work with mamas and I had one, I, I take them into a guided meditation and the images and the thoughts come forward. And she said she saw her inner child twirling, just freely mm -hmm. twirling. Then she saw her mother twirling then oh, she saw her grandmother just oh, arms stretched oh, out free oh, and child dude. like we're both crying i mean oh, this is the work right this is the work oh. beautiful yeah yes tell, let's talk about well i guess i have more questions about that what do we know about you know, people are hearing a little bit about polyvagal theory, how so much is communicated through the micro expressions, through the energy, the mirror neurons that's unspoken. That's so much about why I'm so passionate about the deep inner work of the parents to help the children and the parents at the same time. But what do you, what else can you say about how we're transferring our inner critic to our baby? What, what else do we need to know about that? Because all of us do not want to do that. Well, the very easiest way. There are two elements that, that kind of make it possible to shift the inner critic. I guess three. One is the kind of time travel work that you're talking about mm. really starts to change people's sense of self. Yes. Because when we have a negative sense of self, it comes from trauma. It comes from being unaccompanied, being a little kid, not having, not having emotional support. Um, emotional support sounds strategic. Emotional yumminess. Mm. If we don't have emotional yumminess in response to the to the things that happen to us that we get to share with our folks, then we um, then we're alone in a way that little humans actually and big humans are not supposed to be alone. We are not supposed to be alone. They're supposed to be woven together in in enjoyment and delight and laughter, even when things are hard. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be able to tell each other the truth about the hard things that are happening and have somebody go, oh, yeah, that that, that is hard. That this is happening. Hard. And yes, that is hard. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that, that beautiful acknowledgement and yummy accompaniment is what babies need and what humans need. And when we don't get it, we blame ourselves. We try to make sense. We're sense makers. Right. So we're trying to make sense of a difficult world. We're trying to make a sense of a world where our parents are traumatized. We're trying to make sense of mothering that's been passed down from previous centuries 
and we're and we're we're alone with it and then um and then we blame ourselves and then we have a lacerating inner voice and there we are but the other so so one of the things is to begin to time travel to the little one as you do that's so beautiful that you do this work mm-hmm. and um and then the the next thing is to make sure that the little one doesn't have what we always do when we're alone is we try to make rules for ourselves that will help us survive being alone i will never cry I will never speak publicly. I will not believe that anyone will love me. I will not uh, lean into trust. I will never trust anyone again. All of these are agreements we make with ourselves to try to survive unaccompanied trauma. And if we have a contract to believe that we are bad, then there we are. We're just bad. It's just the truth. We just think it's the truth. And that, of course, makes for a lacerating inner, inner critic. And then finally, so if we releasing those contracts is the second thing we can do. The unconscious then, contracts, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing we can do is learn to hear the love inside the inner critic. Mm. <laughs> so I say, Sarah, you're an idiot. I can't believe you would do that. And instead of taking it as the truth, I say to the, that voice, I say, oh, man, I wonder if you get exhausted with all the mistakes that I make. If you would love to live in a world where Sarah never made any mistakes again and you did not have to worry about whether she would be loved and wanted in this world. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, those that kind of it's like becoming a grown up for our inner critic. So our inner critic also isn't alone. It is this kind of this strange paradoxical and radical thing that we get to start to do. Oh my goodness. She said so much just now. And, and I, the unconscious contracts, you're talking about these, these, these promises we make to ourselves, these, these neuropathways, right. Of these beliefs that we internalize also to make our parent not feel alone or to make our parent not feel wrong, like to make our parent not wrong. Yeah. That a little bit. That's so loving and tragic. And (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, babies are little love packages, you know, I mean, sometimes they have health issues that are disrupting their ability to settle, but, but they're, they're little love packages and they, and they're joined with us. They're merged with us. They don't have, their brain doesn't have a differentiated sense of self, self me and my mom or me and my dad or me and my siblings. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so (laughs) there's a, there's a a baby inside of each of us that's that's still merged that's still connected on that deep level and so we'll make contracts uh you know to save ourselves from humiliation and heartbreak of course but we'll also make uh contracts with ourselves agreements with ourselves to try to keep our parents from being alone or to try to um try to um if our if our mom can be right about us being a bad girl, maybe she'll relax, you know, like I'll make I'll be a bad girl so that my mom can be right and relax, you know. So there's an absolute kind of sacrifice, a, thought, a completely unconsidered sacrifice of self that comes from those infant agreements that we make with the people that we loved so much as babies. 
Mm. My goodness. My goodness. I, when, when I heard you talk about that the first time, it, it pointed to so many examples. And I also am so fortunate that my own mother who parented in the classic Southern, nice, positive, people-pleasy way that, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still uncovering my natural emotional states because I still have such strong protective patterns towards toxic, chronic positivity and smiles. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm working on my own resonance and authenticity all the time. Um, but I'm so grateful that she is on the road with me now externally. And really curious about what I'm learning and, and on the journey too. And that is, that is possible, but yet also we can rewrite the story in our bodies, right? Let's talk about that time travel piece and that piece around the neuroplasticity available, like, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So uh, the part of the brain that holds emotional memory is a part of the brain that almost everybody's heard of. It's called the amygdala and it's very central to fear, Mm -hmm. but it also is the home of, uh, of the other primary emotions. They run through the amygdala, the, the tracks that, that our emotions travel on. So interesting. We have, each of us have, like, you could think that anger was a bad thing, but each of us have actually a dedicated pathway devoted to anger. We're supposed to have an anger pathway. It needs to be connected with our care pathway. It needs to be connected with love in order for us to be powerful advocates for good in the world and for change. Um, it's there. It's all of ours. It's our birthright. Our, our sexuality is our birthright. Our, our joy, our capacity for joy is our birthright. It's all wired in there. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's like, it's like a metro system in our brain where, where energy and information flow on the anger track or they flow on the grief track or they flow on the play track or they flow on the sexuality and emergence track. So we, here we are with these, with these wonderful little kind of central clearing houses for emotion that are called the amygdala that track all of our emotional memories and to to kind of track them by emotion as well as by some other kind of cues of perception. And the amygdalas, um, they, they don't have a sense of time. They don't, they don't timestamp anything. Yeah. So like when I was in second grade, my very best friend in the world was a little boy named Bobby. And I remember, I mean, it's just like clear as day. I feel my body sitting there in the lunchroom with him. I had new boots. They were the coolest green color. They were so fabulous. And I put my boot, I remember I swung my foot up onto the bench of the lunch table. And I was like, this is my new boot, Bobby. And Bobby said, it looks like an army boot. And I was like, oh my God, that is the color of green. I was devastated. That was not what I wanted at all. I was in the area of frogs. 
and <laughs> and leaves and and grass and and but you know dark green olive colored grass and it was like oh no it was a moment of devastation i can still feel that everything about it i feel i see bobby across the the um table from me i smell the you know elementary school lunchroom food smells peas and pizza ketchup yeah and i feel the the formica of the table and the bench and uh and i feel my foot inside that boot it's so vivid that is my amygdala and that is what happens with memory for us it's like it does it's not time stamped it's 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 now uh <laughs> yeah and the body responds as if it's now yeah. when you get hit with yeah, something similar exactly. in the present day exactly. right mm -hmm. and what is so hard about this is that it leads to post-traumatic stress disorder and intrusive memories where we don't want the memory of sitting with bobby to come back so strong but um, it also, it means that the brain is forever available for resonant support and accompaniment. So as soon as we get, you know, I've done work with that memory and, 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 and it's more complex now and less intrusive. It's not, it's not the, it's, it, it's a good demonstration, but it doesn't kill me to touch that disappointment of the collapse you know when i discovered the green was not what giving the message that i wanted it to um so as we begin to do the kind of time travel that you're talking about where your client ended up twirling in many generations um that starts to change the way the brain holds memory and moves it from primarily amygdala centered and capable of being intrusive to the hippocampus which is the organ that also holds a memory that's right next to the amygdala, but mm -hmm. timestamps it. My uh, my colleague Olga Nguyen, who uh, teaches resonance as well, she says this work turns uh, intrusive memory, traumatic memory, into life experience. Wow! So, and the amygdala is sensing that that little the. It's an almond-sized part of the brain, and to my understanding, it is scanning the environment four times a second for perceived danger. Yeah, when I was writing my book, I was looking for that four times a second, and I think what I found was like something unbelievable, like two hundred times. Oh, I was like, wow, it's in there vibrating. Looking, yeah. I don't remember the exact number, but I was like, this is a lot. This is a lot of times a second that we're scanning. And so before that experience is integrated with accompaniment that we can provide ourselves, it is stored in that in case of break, in case of emergency kind of zone of, oh, if I get an, if I'm, if, if you are showing up at a conference and someone looks at you sideways and it will go right back to Bobby in the cafeteria of, oh my God, I feel shame. I'm embarrassed. Something's wrong with me. I thought I was this way and I'm actually this way, right? Mm. And so when we return to it and self-accompany it and you imagine big Sarah going, honey, those boots are amazing. And no matter what boots you wear, you're the best. And this world <laughs> is for you to experience life in and have shoes on your feet. And I love every single part of you, at, right? Then it mm. goes into a different part of the brain that won't be activated right, by right. the external stimulus. Right, right. And, and it's really <clears throat> sweet to actually ask questions of our mm. little ones 
and to say, you know, to, to, to catch her experience as if, as if our little selves were real children who had differentiated thoughts and feelings and body sensations from us is yeah. a really cool way to do the time travels because then we catch so much information about ourselves that we never would have caught before. And it comes forward. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I do with, with mothers where we get into a meditative state and we bring forward that, you know, how old is your inner child that wants to come talk to you? And they'll say, oh, she's seven. What does she want you to know? She wants me to know she's tired of trying to be perfect. Yeah. Right? And so the images and the, and the, the, the feelings, the words, they will come forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the relationship we build with that, inner child is the richest, most fertile ground for our healing. Yeah. It's lovely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And when my, uh, you know, the first episode of the podcast, I really did this for the first time on the table of a practitioner doing emotional release body work. And by the end of the session, I'm just weeping and I'm, I'm, I'm imagining my inner child being rocked like a baby. Oh, and literally, I guess it was two days ago, I had a hard phone call and now my, my self-attunement is, is a real priority of mine. And I kind of rub afterwards, I kind of like rub my heart mm-hmm. and just kind of breathe and go, Ooh, that hurt. Mm-hmm. And then I just started swaying and I started imagining yeah. I was rocking myself. I mm-hmm. was nurturing myself at the deepest level of you're so worthy of care and I'm giving Mm. that to you right now. Mm, So beautiful. And I just want everyone to know how powerful and important this is. It's just not in our culture, is it? No, no. We we get told all the time, you know, to be, first of all, we we get told to, to be, to, to, to have self warmth, but nobody tells us how to do it. Sure. It's like climb that mountain. Right. (laughs) And, and talk about self-warmth. I love yeah. that term. I haven't heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about, this this ability to turn toward the self. Um, and and a lot of times, you know, it's something that we were supposed to kind of just integrate naturally from our folks. But a lot of times mm. our folks had too much trauma or never were accompanied or never got to have self-warmth themselves. So they don't even know how to how to say here's how you do it um and and so we're told uh you know to have compassion for others and to be generous and but nobody ever says you know let's just like even those self-care lists you know they're always strategy like you said in the very beginning yeah Um, yeah yeah yeah, they're actions yeah rather Uh than kind of sit down See if what happens if you go inside and give your little being all kinds of love. What happens if you have a warm curiosity about that little one inside of you? Absolutely. And I found on my journey that let's talk also about the default mode network because, and the dark insula, because I know for me, for most of my life, I was running away from what was inside of my body. I could not tolerate being present. I mean, there was some study that said that most people would rather be electrically shocked than have to meditate because our body and our psyche is the dark 
you know, alleyway no one wants to go into at any time of the day. And I could not be with myself. And so I wonder like what that entry point can look like for some folks, because it, it can feel so scary. And that makes so much sense, right? Makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the person who's meanest to us is usually us. Yeah. So yeah. if we have yeah. to be quiet and sit there alone with the meanest person in the world to us, then. Right. Yeah. I will avoid that and put on yeah. 30 Rock and. Yeah. yeah. What a good carbohydrates. idea. Carbohydrates. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Or drugs um, or alcohol, right? That's what we're doing. We're numbing, we're avoiding. We're, we're managing so many different things with our substances and our addictions. Each of our different addictions manages a different uh, circuit. So we're, we're kind of solving internal brain problems with our external addictions and substances. Yes. It's so helpful. And, and as we go along this journey, it, we need them less. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I was so taken with 30 rock and carbohydrates. And I, I, so I've forgotten your original question, Anne. You oh, I'm remember? sorry. That was just my drug of oh, choice. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Tell, tell, yeah. tell us about that and the dark insula. Yeah. Yeah. So the default mode network is the part of the brain that that is supposed to integrate us with our social world and everybody has one again and we're hardwired this is our birthright we have brain areas that are completely devoted to kind of trying to pick up the misstitches of our lives and uh to to help us with creativity and synthesis and integration of self with the world so our default mode network is like the automatic voice of the brain. If you ever wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you can't go back to sleep because your brain is working so hard on rerunning the same gosh darned conversation that you'll never have with your partner or your son or your daughter or your mother, <laughs> that is your default mode network working so hard to try to integrate you and your truths and what you need into a world that's burdened with trauma and incapacity. So the default mode network is when we're not stressed and not traumatized, the default mode network is what figures out that we missed Aunt Agatha's birthday and starts composing the next uh, song that you want to write creativity yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and uh and has plans for your new novel and Mm -hmm. and is wondering what color combinations will work well in the living room or or will work well on your painting canvas so it's it's a it's a wondering synthesizing picking up stitches kind of brain uh capacity now when we're stressed it starts to panic a little bit it gets anxious, starts to try to pick up all the misstitches. Uh-huh. The more the more stress we have, the more it worries, and the more drop stitches there are, and the more there's just like a an yes anxiety internal S show. That's so gosh, that feels so true, doesn't it? That the the more stress we experience the more the default mode network says this kitchen means that you're a failure, just like you were when you failed that test in high school and this, right? Like it just associates yeah. the, the present day logistics yeah. 
with historical experiences that were deeply painful that have not been integrated and healed. Now, right? we're starting, now we're starting to move into the traumatized default mode network when we're picking up those past experiences and making it mean something bad about ourselves. That's the traumatized default mode network that's trying to figure what they see on fMRIs is that a regular default mode network kind of wanders through the brain and doesn't spend a lot of time looping in the amygdala. But when when the brain is traumatized, the default mode network loops back and back and back and back through the intrusive memories. It's actually visible on fMRIs. This is the work of Ruth Lanius. And what one of the case studies that Ruth Lanius did was she worked with uh, someone who does work very similar to mine and your work, Anne, who did uh, time travel with huge companion animals like giant panthers or giant bears. And they would, she would do, she did a case study where she took a picture of the default mode network before the time travel and then after the time travel. And what she saw was that with time travel, as we begin to accompany and resolve those memories that are looping because they're looking for accompaniment, Mm -hmm. then the default mode network starts to look more like a normal default mode network, like an unstressed default mode network that gets to work for creativity and integration. Wow. I mean... I'm, I'm taking notes too, you guys. I, I, I'm so curious what the time travel was with the large animals. Oh, just like this, you know, where you go back and you're with the little one and you're protecting her or him or them. Right. It's a protector to come yeah. in yeah. and say, don't hurt her. I've got her. And then you yeah. jump on the tiger's back and run off on a rainbow mm-hmm. kind of deal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It does not matter if it's rooted in fantasy or reality. Mm-hmm. It's the symbolic nature of being protected, accompanied, yeah. I mean, right? Yeah. And removed. Yeah. Our imagination, right, 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 right. Our imagination is making things move neurally some of our brains and well that's it's like uh brain surgery it it is i mean i have experienced that where even going into a state where i'd done some breath work i was really into my body and i was with a safe practitioner i was able to remember things about a traumatic event that if you asked me point blank in my conscious state i would say i don't know i don't know what happened after that i don't i have all i remember is this muddy general idea. Mm. We went back and I remembered, oh, I walked out of that room by myself. Oh, mm-hmm. no one in my family acknowledged what just happened. Right. Mm. And then I imagined adult me saying, baby, Anne, you stay with me. You, you can hold onto my leg. We're going to mm. go into the kitchen and get your favorite ice from the ice maker. You stay mm. with me every moment of every day. I've got you. Right. Mm. And just really, really being so nurturing towards her and providing such a sense of safety in the Uh, way that I knew only I know what I needed. Right. There's an awareness that I have of what I needed that literally no one else can, can have access to. Right. Right. And then my nervous system, right. Like the, the window of tolerance in my body in my nervous system, right. That window of tolerance where I can experience stress and external stimuli and not go into my stress response. Mm. I felt an immediate permanent widening of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Then your default network was changed. My God. And and 
And this is the work that psychedelics is doing a lot, right? Is it what psychedelics do? And I don't know if this is your area of research, but how the default no mode network kind of goes offline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of what makes it so, you know, it's like opening up the grandfather clock and, and really reorganizing a lot of the gears, right? Yeah. When, when you know, everyone's asleep in the house. Right, right. <laughs> this idea. Yeah, there's uh there's a lot that happens with uh, with the new psychoactive drugs, you know, and psychoactive assisted therapies that are just, just extraordinarily beautiful. Yes. Ketamine right now, psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, just very cool and amazing things happening for people when it's taken rather than being taken recreationally, when it's taken therapeutically. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a good friend doing ketamine um assisted therapy, facilitating it. And I'm going to have her come on because I'm so oh, interested. And I'm curious too, how do you define trauma? What is your definition of trauma? When we talk about the traumatized amygdala, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, this is something that we really saw on a global, well, not quite global, but on a national level with the comparison between how the vets from World War II did compared to how the vets from Vietnam did. Mm -hmm. After a traumatic event, if there's somebody with you who uh, appreciates you, accompanies you, acknowledges you, supports you, welcomes you, then the trauma doesn't tend to recur as intrusive memory mm -hmm. in the same way. So we also saw this in uh, the Nepalese Civil War, where Maoist soldiers were conscripting little boys as young as five years old and taking them off to serve in the, in the army. And when the little boys would come home, the ones who came home and were scorned and those families had died or no longer had homes or tragedy had happened, those kids had very high rates of PTSD. And the kids who came home to homes that were stable and loving and responsive and communities that welcomed them, those kids had very low rates of PTSD. Same thing that happened with our um, with the rates of PTSD after Vietnam, skyrocketing when the soldiers came home to be spit upon and scorned rather oh, than being welcomed. By, by society, right, mm -hmm. by society. Is that the difference between World War II and, and Vietnam? Just culturally, yeah. they were being celebrated and appreciated there are a couple other differences too because the kind of medical the kind of military training um that the soldiers were put through changed making it more traumatic to be a soldier but 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 in general terms this piece about not being welcomed was was really an important an important thing mm -hmm. and um and so this is true for us with with personal trauma as well. That if I often work, I've worked all over the world with women who have survived uh, assault and abuse. Um, and and when I say to them, "What was the worst moment?" The worst moment was not when they were hurt by the person. The worst moment was when their mother said, "You must never tell anyone that this happened." Or their father said, how short was your skirt? Instead of like, dang it, 
you know, of course this was horrible. What can, you know, let's take action. Let's make sure you have support. Let's, you know, instead of right. blaming the, the person who experienced the harm. It's, it's, it's not the event itself. It's the meaning made out of the event and the aloneness. The aloneness. Yeah. The isolation. So that's trauma. my definition of trauma. That was a long way around. No. Give well, me no. <laughs> well, and I, and I, I think I think the lowercase t trauma that has been so invisible and invalidated. And for me, I grew up in a lovely home with two parents and no, they created such a um, relatively very stable environment. And yet the interpersonal piece and the emotional allowance piece and the validation piece and, and just the, the, the lack of resonance in the family system that a sensitive person like me really internalized as there being something wrong with me because I can't connect with people on the deep way that I'm designed to. And no one seems to care about that. Like in my, in every part of my upbringing, like in my culture, it just felt very one dimensional and I, and I couldn't go deeper and I couldn't feel seen and I couldn't figure out who I was within that. And, and then also I had an abusive partner in college. And, but I, I think that for the typical parent listening, they can't point to back to the original concept of, you know, my mother treated me well, why am I struggling so much? And it, and it clicked in me when I realized, oh, the impact of my lived experience created so much protective adaptation in me and so much unrecognized and unaccompanied pain. This is why I struggle. Like there's nothing wrong with me. I have been responding and adapting and running away from myself. And that is what I think the typical American family has as a major barrier to them being able to parent and connect in the way that they know they want to but aren't able to access yeah. sustainably or enough or to the level that they desire. Don't you think? Absolutely. And there's so much stress for folks mm-hmm. trying to work two jobs to keep food on the table and the mortgage paid and exhausted when you come home and like really wishing for that warm yumminess with the kids, but just fighting continually. Just, yeah, there's just so much that people are up against. Absolutely. And, and I find that the work I do with parents is the work I've done with myself, which is that returning to my own little one inside of me and myself and self accompanying, self celebrating, right. Validating, self empathizing and building that relationship with me and, and my clients are doing this wherever they go because no one can be with you like you can. And so when we accompany ourselves through our lives. Yeah. But right? I want to I put in a plug for, for the you-ness of you accompanying your clients. That you, that, that you and become a part of their brain. That they're not just learning self-accompaniment. They've also got Anne inside of them now who loves them. And is modeling a very different responsive way of being with. Now I wrote I wrote your resonant self because I know how often people have trust issues that stop them from being able to trust an Anne or a Sarah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I yes. thought, well, if I write a book, it won't be a person, and maybe it'll hold people and give them some arms around them that won't be so personal. 
and likely to betray them. Because, of course, if we've had a history of betrayal, it's hard to get into these really yummy relationships with a person who's providing support. But um, just knowing you, just the little time that we've been together on this podcast, I know that your clients are carrying you within them, your warmth, your responsiveness. So it's, you know, we call it self-regulation, but it's always somehow internalized regulation that's come from connection. Mm, Internalized regulation that has come from connection. And I have had those people for me, but I'm only able to provide that because I've also become that for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Like we find safety. We experience safety from other people because they've found safety in their bodies. Yeah. 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 And the beautiful work that you've done then becomes a pattern for the folks who are on your podcast and the people who work with you. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it, right. It just exponential growth because sometimes yeah. I, I've been baffled and in, in my darker days of just the long form tentacles of, of unaddressed trauma. It, yeah. it is baffling yeah. how far they can reach. Right. And I love that you're giving us such evidence-based scientific information about what we can actually do to return back to love, right? Like that is our, that is our default is to connect and to be with each other. And that's why we feel so good when we receive it. And we feel so terrible when we don't, that is our primal drive because we survive by connecting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or working together. Yeah. Or, uh, when we're little and there's, and there's nothing there, then we, we often learn to insulate our nervous systems against relationship. Try to, you know, talk that, about that. And the yeah. dark, the dark insula, is that yeah, where that you're going with that? Actually, sure. Yeah, that includes the insula. So if nobody's responsive to us, um, then we're lonely in a very deep way. Cause it like, if you're a little one who's born with a high love of connection and relationship into a family that's not got very much concept of what that is, then you're, it's interesting, little kids are, are lonely for their parents' depth. They're lonely for their parents' hearts or their son's hearts. Yeah. And, um, and so here we are, lonely, and what we do is we we create those agreements with ourselves that we were talking about earlier, those unconscious contracts. We create these agreements with ourselves not to um, not to expect, not to hope, not to lean, not to believe that anybody's going to be there, to believe that we have to do it all ourselves which is a very good way to move forward to protect ourselves, but leaves us with a kind of an insulation in our nervous systems that prevents us from reaching the highest, our highest birthright of joy and responsiveness. And it's called, scientists call this state avoidant attachment. Secure attachment is where you have access to the higher levels of 
of responsiveness and joy. And in ambivalent detachment, you have access to those higher levels, but you also have a flash temper and not much regulation of cortisol. Cortisol spikes you into fight, flight, alarm, aloneness. Um, and, uh, and so uh, avoidance is, is one of the accommodations that little people make to a world where their reach is not reached back to. So they just stop reaching. And yeah. And part of what happens uh, if nobody's interested in us is the part of the brain that helps us identify body sensations and emotions and does a number of other things as well, called the insula, stops responding. It becomes dark, and that's what the dark insula is, is this non-responsive island of brain tissue that's supposed to be where our emotions, where we understand and know our own selves and our emotions, and that helps us know what we want and helps us kind of follow our dreams because we can tell what our dreams are. Mm-hmm. And and so and when we're raised without anybody paying real attention to our bodies, then we end up without being able to pay attention to our own bodies. And that is a place that's an area of brain tissue that gets to be awakened and becomes richer and richer as we work. Mm. Um, it makes us uh, not having it awake makes us more prone to uh, dissociation and PTSD. God, I mean, I'm still wiping my tears from you saying we're hungry for the hearts of oh, our parents. Yeah, yeah it's just, um, God, I, as I'm working back into security from an avoidant attachment style, there are times when I just, um, I just weep over how tragic it is that connection is something we desire so deeply and that a lot of us feel so unsafe with it. Yeah. Right. And it, 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 uh, it makes us unconsciously avoid it or prevent it. And yet it's what we deeply desire and what we deeply desired as children. Um, so with growing awareness comes the truth and grief, right? And I, um, I'm happy to report for me, I feel closer to myself than I ever have, and therefore closer to my relationships now. Oh, um, but hungry for the hearts that really hit me. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah, my my pleasure. My pleasure. It's, yeah. 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 It, was, it, was, it was very much in response to what you had said about being a little one. Who, right. who, who, who longed for a relationship and had a family that didn't quite know what it was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, um, yes. And doing their best now to continue to meet me and figure that out. And I'm so blessed by that. And well, so baffled by that, that all of that can exist, right? Yeah, like the impact yeah. can exist and the never ending desire because of, neuroplasticity let's let's wrap up with that very reassuring concept neuroplasticity tell us what it is and how we can manipulate it for our benefit (laughs) well we've been talking about it all along yeah um there are 
I can't remember if there are five ways that the brain changes and grows. We can make new neurons. Even when we're grown up, the hippocampus is making new neurons, which is the part of the brain, if you remember, that takes over from the amygdala and timestamps memory. So we're growing. And then those, and then those neurons that hold the memory they actually migrate out. The, the memories migrate out into the, into the cortex. It takes about three years for memories to move, new memory connections to move into the, into the cortex. Um, yeah. But uh, so we grow, we grow new neurons, we grow new branches off of old neuron trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we form new connections with those new branches and with old branches. We form new connections with other neurons. The amount of neurotransmitter and the type of neurotransmitter that we're producing changes as we are as we neuroplastically grow and heal. So our brains become more stable. There's there, and then there are also epigenetic changes that happen. This is the work of. Herbert Benson at, uh, near Harvard, at the hospital that belongs to Harvard, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where he discovered that we change the, hypo- the cells, the, the epi- epigenetic expression of the hypothalamus, and the, the amount of cortisol that we produce in response to stress changes as a result of this kind of healing work that we do. Thank God. Thank God. Yes, 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 absolutely. And we used to believe that, okay, you're a child and your brain is growing and then your brain stops growing and then you're just stuck with that brain. <laughs> Wipe your hands clean, end of story. Good luck. Yeah, Bye. you just have to figure out how to how to live with it, which usually involves substances and addictions in order to manage that because it's... Yeah, or lifelong prescription and just, I'm stuck with this diagnosis. I'm just going to manage with these meds. Exactly. I mean, there's so much possibility that now we understand because of all this, the decade of the brain, right? And all these technological advances that have revealed so much empowering, inspiring information that you've just given us so much today, Sarah. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed the podcast that you heard and invited me to be with you. It's a real honor to know that you're out there doing this beautiful work in the world for your folks, for your people. Oh my God. Same. I mean, it's very rare to have such hard science combined with <laughs> such loving energy and it just got me. Woo, I'm going to end this and uh, put on some music and weep for a little bit, but no, mm-hmm. I, uh, and if I need to do that, I just might because my body knows what I need. Right. Excellent. Um, Yeah, but I'm so grateful that you came on. And and please tell us, where can people connect with you if they want to seek more? Sure. Um, My website, sarahpayton.com. There's a button on the homepage that says Start Healing Now. And you can sign up. And then there's like a series of uh, emails and guided meditations that uh, are, it's a whole free series to start you on your healing journey if you would like that. Oh, wonderful. I can't wait to see what you're doing over there. I'm definitely going to press that button. (laughs) Start healing now. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Anne. All the best to you in the world. You too. Thank y'all so much for being here and spending your precious time and energy and brain space on this world that I'm creating. And please, if this feels resonate with you and you think of people that you want to share this with I want this to be spread far and wide it's not about me it's about the work and the ideas and how much we need to elevate 
our environment and have as many of our friends and family and as many parents and people waking up to themselves, their own power and how good life can get. Love you guys.